The information provided on this podcast is not legal advice and is intended for the sole purpose of providing education and legal information. Laws change over time, and the information provided on this podcast may not be up to date. We make no warranty, express or implied, regarding the information provided by our team or our guests on this podcast. The information should not be construed as legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with us or any of our guests on the podcast. If you would like to consult with an attorney, please call 1-800-VICTIMS. That's 1-800-842-8467 for attorney referral contact information. This podcast provides a platform for the exchange of ideas and information to help educate crime victims on their rights. Some content will include topics and materials that may involve descriptions of violence or assaults which can be distressing to victims and survivors. It may also impact service providers experiencing vicarious trauma. Podcasting from the Victims of Crime Resource Center, this is Knowledge is Power, Victim to Survivor, a podcast series where we help crime victims understand their rights so they can go from victims to survivors. On this episode, we'll discuss domestic violence. Welcome in, everyone. It's me once again, your humble host, Nima Malavi, with the Victim of Crime Resource Center. And today it is my pleasure to welcome in Jaya Badiga into the podcast. Jaya is the founder and attorney of the Badiga Law Office. Jaya, thank you so much for taking your time and coming on the podcast here today. Thank you for having me. Let's start our discussion of domestic violence by maybe getting a little bit of uh, information from you. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in working with victims of domestic violence and sexual assault? Yes. So initially, um, way back in 2002, I was a certified crisis line counselor through Weave for about a year where I volunteered my time um, a couple of hours a week and um, took calls that came in to the crisis line, um, as it was known at that time, and assisted with the resources that Weave, which is a nonprofit in the Sacramento area that serves victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, um, and provides them with access to shelter, to counseling, to legal services and information. And um, as a result of that, I really got in depth in terms of listening to what seemed to be uh, the greatest need at that time, which was legal. And that helped me transition my career at that time into the legal area. And after that, um, coincidentally, I happened to go back to Weave as the managing attorney for about four and a half years and ran the legal department. We were able to secure um, state and federal funding to provide legal services to clients um, and victims of domestic violence and sexual assault and trafficking as well. And um, that kind of helped me understand this area of law in um really good detail and to understand the protections behind it, um, the ways of securing assistance um, or the practical aspects of of what the effects may be in a client's uh, life. I see. Maybe we should set the the groundwork by, by talking about what constitutes domestic violence or domestic abuse. Okay. So... I want to make a distinction to your listeners here in terms of domestic violence. So socially, um, or if you go to counseling for domestic violence and domestic abuse, the field is wide in terms of what could constitute domestic violence. So verbal abuse, dysfunction in relationships, um, all of that center around two themes, which are power and control. And anytime there's an imbalance in power and control, it manifests in different ways. 
And there's a model that a lot of counselors and providers of services in this area use called the Duluth model, the power and control wheel. And this basically references um, as to how power and control is used in uh, social settings as a form of physical, sexual, emotional, spiritual, and other forms of violence. And the distinction that I'd like to make here is that California law, which is the Domestic Violence Prevention Act, has a few of these elements codified in family code as domestic violence protection orders um, or laws related to the prevention of domestic violence. But not everything that is socially considered to be domestic violence or domestic abuse is um, a law that you can get protection from in a legal atmosphere. So you need to know that there's a distinction. One of the biggest ones is, for example, financial abuse. Um, right now in California law, to my understanding, there is provisions for financial or economic abuse in the elder abuse area of law, but it does not automatically translate to the Domestic Violence Prevention Act. And because of that, while financial abuse is something constant that I've seen in cases in domestic violence, it's not an independent factor where uh, a victim or survivor, and I'll use those terms interchangeably, can go to an attorney and say, um, you know, I'm a victim of financial abuse through my marital or other domestic partner's uh, relationship, and I need assistance. So what are the other sorts of abuse? You mentioned financial abuse. Uh, also, f physical abuse uh, would be certainly something that would, would be protected. Um, but maybe you could talk about some of the other forms of, of abuse and then also talk about which ones the state provides protection for. Okay. So the forms of abuse that are not considered fully as its own um, provisions that are codified in law are psychological abuse. So that is a big one because a lot of power and control dynamics in a relationship center around this concept of um, gaslighting, as it's called, in a, a social or a psychological environment, or emotional manipulation. Um, and a lot of the abusive aspects of the relationship, the main themes are the ability of the abuser or the person who is exerting control over the survivor or the victim. So the ability of the abuser to manipulate situations and relationships to always blame the victim or to play mind games with the victim um, and make them feel that they're, they're possibly not mentally stable or that the fault lies with them. So any resource or assistance that they seek, they're the ones at fault for, have causing, uh, for causing a situation or causing an outcome in that relationship. And you mentioned a term gaslighting. Could you could you define that term for our audience? Yeah, so my understanding, and I'm not an expert in the mm. psychology area, but my understanding of gaslighting is when the you're made to feel like you said something when you didn't, or you're made to feel like you did something when you didn't. Um, and one of the, uh, the key examples, and I'd hate to go back to entertainment to provide this, but 
there's um, an old movie with Julia Roberts where she plays, you know, the victim of domestic violence. And in her escape from um, domestic violence in, in the course of this movie, she sets up uh, a safe place elsewhere from her abuser. And um, one of the things that the movie does a good job of portraying is how the abuser wanted things in um, the pantry or the closet shelf or the kitchen shelf to be exactly in order in terms of how, how the cereal or things were organized. And one of, in, the, in that movie, one of the moments was an showing how when the abuser re-entered her life and she didn't know that, that she'd open up this kitchen cabinet door and suddenly all the cereal boxes or items in it were organized and that causes a panic in her. Right. So this is a loose example of gaslighting. And basically, it just means that you're made to feel that you are crazy. You're made to feel that you did or said something when you didn't um, or things are put in a way or um, you, you're made to feel that you contributed to something when you didn't. Mm, I see. How has technology impacted domestic violence, domestic abuse? So. There are advantages to technological improvements. Um, and one of the key advantages is that now there is software at um, family law facilitators' offices in courts and with other nonprofits that helps lay out the paperwork in a manner where it's easy to fill out through the software. There are also apps out there that allow you to contact either national or statewide domestic violence um, resources for prevention. And there are other apps that allow you to um, make logs or document things in terms of, you know, screenshotting when threatening messages come up or, or other apps that allow you to um, download a whole bunch of texts and things like that. There's also the flip side of it. With the progress of technology, there are many adverse um, aspects of technology. And one of the key things is that people don't realize that when you're in a family plan in terms of telephone services, right, and if the abuser is the one that is in control of that family plan and you have devices like the iPhone through the Find My iPhone settings, through going online and looking at call logs through the service providers, they know where you are all the time. And if you're really advanced technologically, there are ways when the phone can be used against you in terms of installing ghost apps or apps that don't show up on the phone where either your movements are recorded or sometimes even your voice is recorded without your knowledge. And sometimes, you know, you can get a sense of if there are ghost apps on your phone, your phone's not functioning well or battery just drains really fast um, and you can't explain why and maybe there's some unusual activity on your phone, um, calls or texts that you know you didn't make that are, that are there. So some of these should be indicators that maybe something is wrong and that um, the abusive partner or person in your life could be controlling or doing things to um, track you or make it difficult for you to, to, or to use this against you. Right. Mm -hmm. So these are some of the more nefarious ones. There are also um, apps like Snapchat, for instance, where the messages disappear. 
So while, you know, there is, uh, or I've read that there are provisions in Snapchat that say that you can get access to these messages, it requires legal intervention. It requires um, an attorney that knows how to subpoena these documents um, or get them. But oftentimes, in family law, the statistics are that, at least in Sacramento County, in the past few years, more than 70% of filers um, were representing themselves. What are the odds that someone is able to get the know-how um, or have procedures in place where they're able to secure this this kind of material? Probably not very high. Not very high at all. How widespread is the problem of domestic violence? Statistics show that it is really widespread in terms of, if you're looking at the category of intimate partner violence, <clears throat> statistics show that um, it is at least you know one in four women that are either stalked or abused. Um, and what you have to note about statistics is that once you come down to, to groups, um, perhaps you're looking at the LGBTQ population, which is the you know, lesbian, gay, um, bisexual, transgender population, or queer population, um, or you're looking at perhaps the deaf community or um, a minority within the city, once you're looking at groups that are different from mainstream, you're going to see a higher incidence of domestic violence only because the um, accessibility of assistance in those groups or the defining elements of those groups that form their cultural identity, perhaps, um, it's hard for them to go outside and secure services. And oftentimes, when you do get help for yourself, you're made to leave that community or you're made to leave that culture because you've done something that was against, you know, the broader rules of society in that culture. Now, you did mention uh, the um, the existence of different groups than, than the mainstream, which kind of leads me to my next question. Maybe you can talk about the typical victim, if there is such a thing, or, or who is generally a, a victim of domestic violence or abuse. So statistics show that women tend to be primarily the victims, but al although you know that's not necessarily true in terms of individual relationships, um, I have had clients that are men. Um, again, statistics show a higher incidence of domestic violence in the Native American populations, in the LGBTQ populations, in um, the deaf community, for instance. And one of the frequent criticisms that I receive uh, personally, as well as the organization um, Weave that I was with earlier received, was that there is bias against men. And to me, uh, my position is that when the disclosure or the outreach for services is limited, and we can show that statistically these numbers are limited for men, then you're looking at data not only for our organization, but statewide in California and nationally. And women far outweigh that number in terms of men that seek assistance. Now, there are barriers for men and um, people in the LGBTQ community and other communities where they're either prevented from a social norm point of view to, to seek services because you know they're criticized or made fun of or not taken seriously. But on the whole, I think statistics will show that uh, if there's one group or one gender, it's probably women that 
tend to be victims or survivors, whichever term you want to use, more than the other. I know you mentioned before in our conversation on gaslighting some of the perhaps warning signs of domestic violence. I was hoping you could maybe explain some other warning signs of uh, domestic violence. Yeah. So there is a cycle of violence um, that's described again in a social science or in a therapeutic atmospheres, right? And that cycle includes um, phases in a relationship where in a relationship, initially, the first few um, weeks or months or years, depending, is called the honeymoon period, where everything is fine, things are going great. And then you start to see, you know, the power and control imbalance or dysfunction coming in. And and that could lead to arguing, fighting, um, verbal abuse, physical abuse, and ultimately cause an incident or an explosion, right? Because there's a buildup of stressors, there's a buildup of activity, there's a buildup of the imbalance. And once that explosion or incident occurs, then immediately um, the function of the abuser is, especially initially, you know, profuse apology, it'll never happen again. And here's where gaslighting will come in too, where, you know, it's your fault. You made me do this. You pushed my buttons. You did this to me where I couldn't help but have this reaction. And suddenly the victim or the survivor starts to feel remorse. Oh my gosh, yeah, I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have done that. And that's the psychological manipulation that's coming in pretty early in a relationship where, you know, everything is the victim's fault. And then the profuse apologies or um, the, you know, the sorries, this will never happen again, the promises that behaviors will change, right? There's this, again, this period of forgiveness, and, and it leads back to that honeymoon period of where everything's okay. But a warning sign in relationship is when these cycles start to get shorter, and the time between that honeymoon period and the explosion or incident is shorter, or that the abuse escalates, where... You know, initially say it was, you know, verbal abuse or it was pushing and shoving and now suddenly you're being physically hit or you're being hurt um, or there's sexual assault involved earlier. Maybe the acts of sexual intimacy were, were nicer, kinder, and suddenly now it's forceful, it's without consent. So these are all warning signs for people in relationships to know that as the escalation increases, the danger to themselves or their children is also going to increase. Jay, are there any common misconceptions about domestic violence? Yeah, I've touched on the one of them, which is that men cannot be victims, right? And, and they totally can, because if you're looking at that power and control nature, um, any person in that relationship can be the person that wields that power and control. Other misconceptions are that um, it happens primarily to poorer people or low-income people and not to richer people. Um, and that's absolutely false because it's prevalent everywhere. You may not read about things that are happening in sections of the city or society that, that appear to be more well-groomed or higher in income, but it's definitely happening universally across the board. Um, some other common misperceptions uh, are that you need to have physical bruises or you need to look a certain way to be identified as a victim. And... That, to me, especially in a court system, is um, really difficult to get people to change perceptions on because California is one of the few states that has actually included emotional 
abuse as a factor for domestic violence protection. Um, and there are categories or a scale in terms of the emotional abuse. It has to be pretty severe. Um, it has to be what cases have termed as a disturbance of the peace. So it's not just, you know, the gaslighting that I referenced or power control imbalance that, that can lead you to go file a restraining order. But it has to be emotional abuse of a high degree that cases have identified as um, requiring the victim to get protection. And in some of these cases, uh, one of the cases was where the abuser distributed you know, hundreds of pages of personal material about the victim to a mediator. And this was private information that he got from um, the computer that they shared without her consent. Um, and that caused the courts in one of the cases to provide a restraining order for emotional disturbance um, or emotional abuse. And in another case, it was um, the level of control or stalking was so high that the court based on the facts that were provided in that case, said that the actions um, were bound to have had impact on the victim's mind. Um, and some of these uh, actions were that the abuser would um, have the victim leave her phone on when she attended college um, or classes so that the abuser knew that she was actually going to classes. Um, it was, you know, uh, having to have either unknown recording devices or known recording devices, so the abuser was able to track the victim's movements. Um, it was, in one of the cases, um, if I remember correctly in this case, it was the threat or dissemination of information to the victim's minor children about the possibility of sexually transmitted diseases based on an act that mom was doing um, with her partner, which, you know, the earlier uh, partner didn't want or disagreed with. So it's these kinds of extreme behavior where the courts, upon analyzing the facts, say that, you know, emotional abuse can be a category for protection. That's all the time we have for today's episode. Please join us on our next episode for part two of the discussion. Thanks for listening.